Welcome to the Yukon Internal Medicine Podcast. This is Alator Shujin, your host and a chief medical resident at the University of Connecticut. A quick disclaimer before we start. All opinions and views expressed in our podcast are entirely the responsibility of the authors and do not represent the opinions of anyone else in the Yukon Department of Medicine. The content presented is for educational purposes only and should not be taken as medical advice. With that in mind, I would like to welcome you back to our ambulatory series, and today I would like to discuss Bell's palsy, its clinical manifestations, differential diagnosis, and therapy options. Let's start off with a quick introduction on the Bell's palsy. It was named after Sir Charles Bell, who was the first one to describe this condition in the function of the facial nerve back in 1820s. Bell's palsy remains a diagnosis of exclusion. All other causes of facial palsy need to be considered and ruled out first. Bell's palsy is believed to be idiopathic in nature, but there are some theories about its pathophysiology. One of the hypotheses proposes that Bell's palsy happens as a result of herpes simplex virus, more specifically HSV type 1 reactivation. This theory was further supported by finding of HSV DNA in the intraneural fluid collected during surgical decompression. Another hypothesis proposes that Bell's palsy could be a mononeuritic variant of Guillain-Barré syndrome. This theory stems from observation that patients had decreased suppressor cells, increased B lymphocytes, and elevated levels of IL-1, IL-6, and TNF-alpha. The actual symptoms come from facial nerve swelling, which impairs its function. It's unclear why some people are more predisposed to Bell's palsy than others, but one of the theories relies on anatomy to explain the difference. Facial nerve has a tortuous course that starts at pons in the brainstem and enters into the temporal bone through internal acoustic meatus and continues its course into the facial canal, forming a geniculate ganglion. Geniculate ganglion separates nerve into three branches. Greater petrosal nerve, which provides parasympathetic innervation to the lacrimal glands, stapedius nerve, which innervates the pedius muscle of the middle ear, and the corda tympani, which provides sensory innervation to the anterior two-thirds of the tongue and parasympathetic innervation to the submandibular glands. Facial canal is about 3 centimeters in length and is the longest human osseous canal that passes a nerve. While in children, the nerve occupies only about 80% of the canal cross-sectional area, in adults, it's nearly 99%. MRI imaging done in patients with Bell's palsy indicated that affected site tends to have a narrower internal auditory and facial canals compared to the unaffected site. Hypothetically, narrow internal auditory and facial canals could make one more likely to develop Bell's palsy in the setting of facial nerve swelling. So, what is a typical presentation for Bell's palsy? Usually, it presents with facial paralysis that develops over the course of one to three days. Importantly, most patients will be able to recall the exact date when the symptoms started. If patients are reporting a slow onset of facial paralysis that develops over weeks to months, it is more likely to be caused by a neoplastic process. Patients with Bell's palsy may also complain of retroauricular pain, 
autalgia, abnormal taste, hyperacusis, ocular irritation, and drooling from the corner of the mouth. Bell's palsy is actually the most common peripheral mononeuropathy, accounting for 65-75% to 75% of all cases of peripheral nerve paralysis, and its incidence ranges from 20 to 30 cases per 100,000 people per year. While Bell's palsy is relatively common, and most of the cases are hypothesized to have an infectious or autoimmune origin, it is important to consider secondary causes of facial palsy, which occur in 25 to 35% of cases. Ask your patient if they had any recent head trauma, facial surgeries, ear drainage, history of head and neck tumors, history of systemic autoimmune disease or sarcoidosis. Ask your patient if this is the first episode of facial palsy or if it's recurrent. One of the rare syndromes with recurrent facial palsy is Melkerson-Rosenthal syndrome, also known as orofacial granulomatosis. In that syndrome, not only is facial palsy recurrent, but it is also accompanied by lip or tongue swelling and lingua plicata or fissured tongue. Lyme disease or neuroborreliosis should be considered in patients living in endemic areas and with history suggestive of exposure. Interestingly, while Lyme disease usually causes unilateral facial palsy, it is the most common cause of bilateral facial palsy. Rumsey-Hunt syndrome, also known as herpes zoster oticus, is another syndrome important to keep in mind, which presents as facial palsy accompanied by otalgia, sensory neural hearing loss, vesicular eruptions in the external auditory canal, pinna, anterior two-thirds of the tongue or hard palate. Make sure you know the difference between peripheral and central palsy as well. In peripheral facial palsy, such as the one caused by an ischemic stroke, there is sparing of the upper face with only lower facial motor function impaired. Physical exam is key when it comes to diagnosing Bell's palsy. There are some ocular exam findings that could be helpful. Bell's phenomenon, which refers to the movement of the eyes in an upward direction when the eyelids are forcefully closed, can be appreciated in patients with Bell's palsy because most patients will not be able to fully close the eye on the affected side. Corneal reflex is usually diminished or absent in patients with Bell's palsy, which is primarily caused by weakness of orbicularis oculi muscle. Lastly, shimmer tests can be performed and may indicate decreased tear production. As you may remember, one of the branches of the facial nerve provides parasympathetic innervation to the lacrimal gland. Examining cranial nerves bilaterally is also important as involvement of other cranial nerves may suggest a different etiology. A detailed examination of the ear can also provide helpful information. It can help identify secondary causes of facial palsy, including Ramsey-Hunt syndrome, otitis media, cholesteatoma. Make sure to palpate parotid gland and patient's neck to feel for any masses or growths. Because Bell's palsy is a diagnosis of exclusion, further testing is usually needed when secondary causes are suspected. For example, if patient has a history of autoimmune disease or recurrent facial palsy, additional blood work may be needed such as CBC, CRP, ESR, rheumatoid factor, ANCA, 
antiphospholipid antibodies, and ACE. CSF testing may be needed if you're considering Merklesen-Rosenthal syndrome, Lyme meningitis, or VZV meningitis. In patients with atypical features, MRI of the brain with and without contrast may be necessary. Electroneuronography, or ENOG, is indicated between days 3 and 14 from symptom onset in patients who present with a complete absence of hemifacial movement. This is done to assess patients' candidacy for a surgical nerve decompression. More specifically, surgical intervention would be indicated if there is evidence of more than 90% of nerve denervation. Next important question is, how do we manage Bell's palsy and what are patients' chances of recovery? In Bell's palsy, symptoms usually peak by third day and improve by three weeks, with full resolution of symptoms expected after three to four months for more than 70% of patients. If there is no signs of facial function recovery by three months, other diagnoses need to be considered. Poor prognostic factors are usually advanced age, hypertension, complete paralysis at onset, as well as diabetes and pregnancy. Young age, incomplete paralysis, intact taste and hearing are all good prognostic factors that usually promise early recovery. Unfortunately, about 20-25% to of patients have residual facial asymmetry and struggle to regain full function of their face. After the diagnosis of Bell's palsy is confirmed, patients should be treated with prednisone 60mg daily for 5 days, followed by a 5-day taper, reducing prednisone by 10mg every day. Important to note that benefits from steroids are greatest when started within the three days of symptom onset. Aside from steroids, valacyclovir and acyclovir can be given to patients who have Ramsey-Hunt syndrome, though there is no consensus about benefits of antivirals in addition to steroids in that patient group. In patients with Lyme-associated facial palsy, treatment with doxycycline should be initiated for 10 to 21 days. Interestingly, use of steroids monotherapy is thought to increase the spirochet load in neural tissues in Lyme-associated facial palsy and as a result is not recommended. In cases where patients are unable to achieve eye closure, eye protection is essential to prevent corneal damage. Sometimes artificial tears may be necessary as well. Physical therapy is another helpful tool for patients with moderate to severe facial palsy. Before we wrap up this episode, let's talk about another rare condition that can follow a facial palsy. Some patients may experience postperilytic facial nerve syndrome, or PFS, which represents different types of facial synkinesis. To put it in simple terms, synkinesis is involuntary movement in the presence of voluntary movement. For example, patients may have shedding of tears while eating or drinking. Some patients will have eye closure while talking or smiling. PFS, or synkinesis, is believed to be caused by abnormal regeneration of the nerve. And unfortunately, once the syndrome develops, it usually does not resolve on its own. The only treatment options available are musculature retraining with physical therapy, Botox injections, and some surgical interventions. That's all we have for you for this week. 
Thank you so much for listening and we will see you in our next episode.